Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey everyone, it's Alex Ward. I'm the Not Jen and Zach member of the Worldly Trio. And here at Worldly, part of the Fox Media Podcast Network, we're doing a series on progressive foreign policy. I was scheduled to speak with Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. He's a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and a major champion of defining what a progressive foreign policy looks like. And then Syria happened. In case you haven't been following, what you need to know is President Trump withdrew American troops from northern Syria. Turkey started to come in our allies against ISIS, the Kurds, allied with Syrian President Bashar al-Assad to move northward, and it's a mess. So we started off talking about Syria, Trump's move, what the senator thinks about it, and then how all of this might even tie in to a progressive foreign policy. So let's not belabor the point anymore. Let's get right to my interview with the senator. Senator, just right off the top, your thoughts on Trump's decision to withdraw troops from Syria and the aftermath that we've seen. It's absolutely diabolical. I don't know that we've seen a double cross like this, at least in recent American foreign policy history. Uh, the aftermath of this is you know, hard to uh, understand. Uh, obviously, we have a humanitarian catastrophe playing out in front of our eyes right now. Uh, we've pushed the Kurds into the hands of Bashar al-Assad. And if Congress moves forward with sanctions that the Trump administration has already begun to implement, we are going to push Turkey further into an access with Russia and Iran. Uh, and the three of them will be empowered along with ISIS, who will be allowed to reconstitute as fighters escape uh, detainment. Uh, but also uh, we take our foot off of the proverbial pedal when it comes to the anti-ISIS offensive. Uh, it's all bad news for us in the region right now. And in the long run, it ruins our credibility as a partner. Who is going to be willing to sign up to fight terrorism with the United States if they're subject to this kind of treatment? And, of course, it's all so tragic because it was avoidable. Uh, I mean, Trump has been telegraphing he wanted to take our troops out for years. And if that was the case, then he should have been doing the diplomatic and political work in northeast Syria to try to come up with a governance structure in which you could have Kurdish control of that region in a way that Turkey could live with. That was difficult, but not impossible. And the fact that the Trump administration didn't even try to work out a political solution um, makes this moment so hard to comprehend. So just in your mind, removing troops in and of itself was not necessarily a wrong policy. Many people could disagree on that, but for some folks, that's a fine thing to do. But it's the way in which it was done and not trying to make some sort of diplomatic solution or agreement while troops were there is really the, the sin in your mind. Yeah, I don't know that anyone envisioned America having 2,000 troops in Syria for the next 20 years. 
um, they were there as leverage for us to try to work out a political solution so that our Kurdish partners were protected um, and that the legitimate security concerns of Turkey uh, about the interactions that uh, the Kurds in Syria have with the PKK, this terrorist group that uh, Turkey has concerns with, were addressed. Um, but again, what what is so difficult to stomach is that um, Trump didn't really try to work out those concerns. He didn't try to fix the political problem in northeast Syria. And he pulled uh, American support with absolutely no warning to anyone so that our troops are running for their lives uh, and uh, everyone uh, that is our adversary in and around that region is benefiting. Was Trump not handed, in all fairness, perhaps a difficult hand here? I mean, of course, Syria by itself was complex, but also President Obama did follow a strategy of allying with the Kurds, which, of course, was always going to rankle Turkey. And so this sort of withdrawal was never really going to be that clean to begin with. So I think there's an element of the foreign policy establishment that is trying to pretend right now that everything was going great in Syria until Trump pulled our 2,000 troops out. Uh, And that is revisionist history. At some point, we need to have a real reckoning um, with um, policy that has gone wrong under both the Democratic and Republican administration. We have always been under the belief that half measures in Turkey could work. We gave just enough support over the course of the last uh, four years to the Syrian rebels that they could keep the fight up against Assad, but never enough support that they could actually win. And so the result of our sometimes covert, sometimes overt support to the Syrian rebels uh, was to just prolong the misery, prolong the civil war. Uh, And then in northeast Syria, well, I think we were smart to not throw tens of thousands of American troops at ISIS and rely instead on our Kurdish partners. Even during the Obama administration, we sometimes only had one single State Department representative in that portion of the country, thus essentially guaranteeing that we were never going to be able to come up with a political settlement. Our Syria policy has been broken for a really long time. What Trump has done uh, is to wrap up our physical presence there in a way that is going to do grave damage to our national security interests in the long run. But he didn't get handed uh, a really good set of cards here. And before we talk about possible other foreign policy approaches and alternatives, I do want to ask uh, one sort of directed question at you since you do sit on Senate Foreign Relations. Obviously, Turkey is a NATO member and an ally, but is it really an ally of the United States at this point? So I think that's a question we have to ask right now. Uh, And one of my worries is that in our anger uh, over what Trump did to the Kurds, we are going to uh, essentially answer that question by default by leveling such crippling sanctions on Turkey that um, we effectively end our security partnership with them. We do have a security partnership with them. We have very powerful weapons uh, that are at our disposal inside Turkey. We do cooperate on uh, many anti-terrorism initiatives. Um, They do contribute uh, dollars and forces to uh, NATO missions. So there are important strategic alliances between us, but I would rather us be able to step back and make a decision thoughtfully about whether Turkey should be inside or outside of NATO, rather than making that decision because we are angry equally at Trump and Turkey at the same time. But just to be clear, you at least think that Turkey's 
uh, status as an ally, or not as a NATO ally, but just as an American ally, is a, is questionable. It is questionable, and it's more questionable than uh, anyone else in the NATO alliance. But we also have to admit that there are plenty of times in which American policy has been at odds with other NATO allies, right? There are other members of this alliance that have not followed us uh, into battle overseas, that have openly disagreed with the decisions that we've made on important strategic questions to the United States. And so um, we have to admit that the alliance is never one in which you have to unconditionally agree with the United States position on every issue, the Turks have gotten pretty far afield at this point, which requires us to step back and ask some tougher questions. And I do want to chat with you now because you've been very vocal for quite some time that uh, not just on Syria, but on multiple issues that America has been going about foreign policy all wrong. You did mention early on when we were talking Turkey, when you mentioned there's this thing called the foreign policy establishment. Can you define that for me? What is this establishment that uh, you seem to be not all too pleased about? <laughs> you know, well, there, there is there is a uh, a group of think tanks in this town, a group of individuals who go back and forth between the public sector and the private sector, who make a living off of concocting interventions around the world uh, through which the United States can have impact. And, you know, sometimes they're not wrong. There are lots of problems around the world that do have an American solution. But there are plenty of problems, especially political ones in the Middle East, that don't have a solution that's led by the United States. And yet uh, very smart people are paid money in this town to propose uh, American-led interventions and plans that often look decent on paper but don't actually work out when you implement them. And Syria, to me, is this perfect example in which you know the foreign policy establishment um, just could not stand for the idea that the United States couldn't fix what was going wrong in Syria. And yet they knew the American public wouldn't support a massive military intervention there. And so they proposed these half measures, a little bit of covert support for Syrian rebel, a Defense Department run train and equip program for others inside that coalition, bits of humanitarian aid here and there. None of it worked. It all just served to prolong that conflict. Uh, and so um, I do worry that there is this hubris left over about what America can achieve in the Middle East. Sometimes restraint is a policy. And it's hard, I think, for many people who work in foreign policy in the United States to get their head wrapped around that. Why have this massive national security infrastructure, a military and intelligence budget that's 20 times that of most other nations, if you're not going to use it, if you're not going to throw it around? Um, often when we throw around that weight, it does more harm than good. And so tell me then how you came to not only just start critiquing the, the foreign policy establishment. Uh, I mean, you mentioned, of course, the Middle East policy. I'm sure there are other examples. But then maybe start to define how you view a, what you say is a progressive foreign policy. What are the, the main characteristics? And, and then we can start digging deep into that. 
So listen, I, I see progressive foreign policy um, as anchored in the idea that America does have a role to play for good in the world. So progressive foreign policy is not about drawing back and is not about uh, seeing restraint as the rule to which there are exceptions. I, I just think it has to be about deploying different kind of assets other than the United States military. Right now, that's the only card that we have to play in most places around the world. Uh, and so what I've argued for, um, and and I wrote this down in a piece for The Atlantic a couple weeks ago, is that Democratic presidential candidates, especially those who fancy themselves as progressive, uh, need to not just be talking about a different philosophy than Trump, but need to be talking about different capabilities. Um, take, for instance, Syria. Uh, what we're missing is this hybrid class of diplomat warriors, um, diplomats who uh, either can protect themselves or have protection attached to them, who could be in conflict zones, actually working out the political problems on the ground in a way that 19-year-old Marines just can't. If we had those uh, capabilities in Northeast Syria, we might never have arrived at this moment uh, today. I talk about the fact that um, we have to have tests for military action, that it be done through overt rather than covert means, that it be only done with congressional oversight and approval, that we know if we're putting military resources on the ground that we're solving a military problem, not a political problem, all tests that we would have failed in Syria had we asked them back at the late stages of the Obama administration. So I think it's all about more rigorous tests for military action, developing a suite of pro-democracy, pro-human rights tools around the world uh, that we simply don't have today, and then allowing a, a democratic and progressive president to be internationalist, but just with different options to play, different cards to play other than brigades. So this, the, from what you just said, it seems to go to a point you made last September at the Council on Foreign Relations when you said that, and I want to make sure I get this right, the levers that the president can press to try to protect and advance our interests abroad is basically a 1988 Ford Taurus on a road that is crowded with shiny new Teslas and Land Rovers. Uh, first of all, I don't know what you have against Ford Tauruses, but, uh, <laughs> but second... I, I guess what you're kind of getting at, and I do want to get into the tenets in a bit, but what you're getting at is that the United States is just not, regardless of who's president, regardless of who's running American foreign policy, the United States doesn't have the necessary toolkit to deal with any problems, whether it be Syria, uh, China, uh, humanitarian disasters, whatever it may be, that the U.S. just doesn't have an infrastructure to deal with foreign policy issues of the day. We're just not in the game, right? And I own a Ford, by the way. So I was I was only maligning that specific Ford model, not Fords in general. Gotcha, gotcha. No, uh, of course. But <laughs> uh, so yeah, we're just not in the game, right? So let's take Russia, for example. Right? What, what are the cards that Russia is really playing around the world today? Um, they're involved in old-fashioned bribery, graft, and intimidation. Uh, they're involved in sophisticated information warfare. And they're using their oil resources and their gas resources as a political chip. Um, we don't really have any capacities to meet those three threats. Um, we don't have a single uh, classification in our foreign service dedicated to fighting corruption. The, the guy that's fighting corruption in Eastern uh, European countries it probably has six other things that he's doing. Um, so we need to have a we need to massively upscale our anti-corruption efforts all around the world to fight what Russia is doing. Second, we need to have real uh, information um, uh, and counter propaganda resources that we don't today. Uh, Senator Portman and I have been trying to develop a new center in the state department, but Trump has fought us the whole way. And then 
And we need to not just be giving advice to countries about how to avoid dependency on Russian uh, gas and oil. We should actually be putting money on the table to do it. We're spending $4 billion on putting troops in Eastern Europe. If we spent half of that money actually developing interconnections uh, to uh, non-Russian energy sources for countries in and around their periphery, we'd get to much better payoff than we are simply investing in troop deployments. Um, And I could go through the same argument on China, right? We don't have any way to countenance what China is doing to use its technology exports uh, as a way to gain a national security foothold um, uh, throughout the globe. So we just have to staff up these non-military capabilities uh, in a way that we aren't today. And if we do, we'll be able to fight fire with fire. These won't be asymmetric wars any longer because we will have symmetry. We will have a suite of tools that meets the tools that countries like China and Russia are using. But they are not, frankly, winning these battles. They are not gaining influence with aircraft carriers. Um, They are doing it with non-military capabilities. So it almost sounds like what you're calling for is a not necessarily the the past years of American military intervention around the world, but you're calling for almost America's non-military intervention around the world, promoting human rights, pushing against corruption. I mean, this would involve sustained involvement in multiple countries around the world. I mean, this would be quite a massive effort and lift that in, in a way requires a, a different form of American leadership. Is that kind of what you're aiming for? I, I, I am. I mean, I'm a believer that the United States needs to be a global presence. And and I think that's been borne out by the slide away from democracy uh, and from human rights protections that we've seen just in the last three and a half years. And what's important to remember is that, you know, this isn't just about our, our altruistic belief in others having the ability to access self-determination uh, or free speech or the right to practice the religion they choose. Um, this is about self-interest as well, because Um, places that have more democracies tend to be more stable, um, tend to provide less quarter to terrorist organizations. As uh, human rights abuses are are, uh, more easily perpetuated overseas, it becomes more likely that a would-be demagogue in the United States will get away with perpetrating those same abuses here at home. So if progressives want to care about protecting American democracy, want to protect minority rights here at home, then we have to fight those battles overseas. If we lose them there, we're going to eventually lose them here. And I think I can make the case that ultimately the vision that I have for America's forward deployment is much more cost effective than the one that we have today. We're not getting a really good return on our investment right now. Uh, We're spending $600 billion a year on a military that doesn't seem to be solving a lot of problems around uh, the world. And so we could probably be getting a lot better bang for our buck. But surely you're getting criticism from folks that say, wait a minute, this may not be military globalism to use the president's term, but this is globalism and everything else, right? If you are trying to empower uh, the folks who believe in small d democracy in Russia or in China, if you are, or if you are pushing against corruption in, in multiple countries, if you are making all kinds of deals around the world or trying to uh, get societies to back uh, American policies in certain ways, then this is really kind of American primacy on steroids just without the military component. Yeah, but listen, you cannot isolate yourself today 
the world is interconnected, right? We all know that. And so there is no strategy. Um, if you're simply only worried about your own country's survival through which you wall yourself off from uh, the problems that exist other places and the connections that exist to other nations. And so I think we have no choice but to um, be actively engaged in these other uh, in these other nations. And I also don't think it's an all or nothing proposition. I'm not saying that you know, the United States you know, should push human rights everywhere. And if nations that we do business with don't adopt our notion um, of civil liberties, that we cut off relations with them. No, I'm just saying that it's got to be um, a, a, a forward-looking and present conversation uh, in all of our bilateral relationships. We'll win some and we'll lose some, but we're better off making democracy and human rights uh, a front-burner issue with more countries, even if we don't win every single uh, argument. Part of what seems to be sort of the macro takeaway from this progressive foreign policy vision that you have is this is America somewhat leading an ideological struggle, right? Democracy versus uh, anti-democratic forces that this is in a not not to say that it's equivalent to the Cold War because it's not. But what it is, is the United States picking up the mantle of democracy and and trying to say this is the way forward. This is the way the world could be better. And you can actually get there through less than military means. It, it, it is. Uh, and I ultimately think we have to see the ways in which these threats that look to be external are connected to the threats that are internal. Um, you know, the, the worldwide nationalist movement is interconnected. Just look at the way that Steve Bannon moves seamlessly between the nationalist xenophobic movements in Europe uh, and his handpicked presidential candidate in the United States. And so if we aren't ultimately you know, helping the Germans fight off the rise of the neo-Nazi party, which, by the way, just commanded nearly 30 percent of the vote in local elections in Eastern uh, Europe, um, then we're frankly, I would argue, making it a lot easier for those kind of organizations to then take root and grow to even greater strength in the United States. The, the, the pro-autocrat technology tools that are being developed today by the Chinese will be there for the taking by an American leader who wants to surveil his own people uh, if we don't create uh, alternative technologies um, that uh, don't allow for nations or political leaders to be able to steal your information off of the 5G infrastructure. So again, I, I if you want to look at this through altruistic lenses, you can, but I would also argue that it's essential for the preservation of our American way of life. So then, just to be clear, because there are people, I think, who have a misunderstanding of foreign policy, is this really a new way forward for American global leadership? Because there are some who would say it's actually way too costly for the United States to lead in the world, that actually would be more beneficial if the U.S. not necessarily stepped back, but didn't have to be number one. But you're saying that there's a way for the U.S. to remain number one, and it's actually this progressive foreign policy framework instead of actually we need to take a step back and reassess and, and go a different route. I, I think we need to remain a global leader. And I think the only way that we remain a global leader uh, is to dramatically plus up our democracy promotion tools, our human rights tools, our energy independence tools, our anti-corruption tools, our anti-propaganda tools. I think we have an obligation to protect our own democracy. 
Um, but we also, I think, have a role to play as still the world's uh, strongest and most powerful nation. Uh, and so I think that we absolutely should aspire to uh, be a command presence in the world, but we should do it in a different way that we are today. And I think the tools I'm talking about are also much more nimble and much less likely to get the United States involved into quagmires from which we cannot remove ourselves. Um, When you're playing with um, American troops, uh, once they're in a complicated theater, um, it is difficult to remove them without telegraphing enormous weakness. If you're talking about anti-corruption tools, if you're talking about funding for uh, independent media groups in places, I think it allows you to more easily throttle up investment and throttle back investment. Uh, It's just a lot easier to um, cut your losses um, when you're talking about non-military investments than it is when you're talking about um, building up massive bases and military infrastructure in strange places like uh, Western Afghanistan. So if you snap your fingers then and you can do three you can basically make three foreign policy decisions using this progressive foreign policy framework. What are the first three you make? So I double the non-military national security budget, a budget that's not housed in the military. Two, I would dramatically scale back our covert military programs, the secret training of uh, rebel armies and the uh, drone campaigns that end up hitting 5% of the intended targets are doing America more harm than good. I would dramatically throttle those back. Um, And then I would make a big investment in multilateral institutions, both on the military and non-military side. I make the argument in my piece, progressive foreign policy should invest in military multilateralism just like we invest in humanitarian multilateralism. And so I would put sort of life back in in NATO and look to open it to uh, newcomers as long as they played by our value system. So reinforce strategic alliances, throttle back covert military programming, double the size of the non-military national security budget. Um, That would be a a good place and not an unrealistic place to start. Remember, doubling the budget of the State Department USAID is equal to about one year's of increases to the Department of Defense on our current spending trajectory. Well, Senator, thank you so much for spending time with us. We know you've got a busy schedule and, and we appreciate you chatting about progressive foreign policy. And I guess we'll see in the months and years ahead, whether your ideas make it all the way to the top. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate it. And that was our show. My thanks to Bird Pinkerton, our great producer, and Tushar Dayal, who recorded Senator Murphy from the Senate. Please do all the things you can to rate, subscribe, and get the word of the show out. And we will see you all next week.